Hello and welcome everyone to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to provide great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Jim Olson from Microchip. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Andrew. Glad to be here. Absolutely. I'm very happy that you were able to join us today. For those who haven't met you or maybe aren't familiar with Microchip, could you begin by briefly introducing you know, Microchip and also your role there? Yeah, I work for the Microchip Frequency and Time Systems Business Unit. I'm a solutions architect. I've been in the game for a long time, about 30 years. Our business unit is specific to timing solutions. We're a part of a pretty large company of about $6 billion a year in revenue, mostly in the semiconductor space. But our business unit is a systems unit in a chip company that specializes in timing solutions. Wonderful. Thank you. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I feel like timing is an area where I'm personally fairly ignorant. You know, I've deployed many class five switches with TDM over the years. So I know that it's important to connect a bits clock. And I know that if you don't, you get bit errors and clock slips on the T1s, that kind of thing. But beyond that, I'm fairly ignorant on this topic. So I'm quite looking forward to this opportunity for me personally to become more educated. And also, of course, for our audience, many of whom may be in a, a similar boat to me. But before we get into that, you know, you mentioned you've been in the industry for 30 years. I would love to hear how you got into telecoms in the first place and kind of just the short version of your story to where you are today. Yeah, I started back with a company called Austron in Austin, Texas. And through acquisitions, Austron was acquired by a company called Datum. And Datum was acquired by a company called Symmetricom. And then Symmetricom was acquired by a company called Microsemi. And Microsemi was acquired by Microchip. So back in the Austron days, we made timing systems specifically for government and military applications. And at some point when building integrated timing supplies or bits clocks were introduced into telecom networks, we decided to get into that business. So we were the first ones really to make the RAN receivers for timing and started getting into the GPS timing receiver business. But the history of the acquisition of the different companies is we also make atomic clock standards like cesium standards, rubidium standards. So we make a full range of timing solutions. Cool. All right. Thank you. So yeah, I'm curious to know about these different standards and how different the use cases differ. But let's start with fairly familiar ground for me and for our listeners, TDM networks. So maybe let's assume that somebody's listening who knows less than me, which is, is possible, I guess. For those who don't know, what is timing for a TDM network and why is it important? Timing for a TDM network is frequency-based. You want to align all the different network elements in the various offices in frequency, meaning you want to eliminate or mitigate frequency offsets between those devices in the various offices. So all TDM equipment or time division multiplexing at a T1 level or higher, when those circuits are terminated or multiplexed in different locations, they always use what's called a slip buffer. The circuit comes into the slip buffer, and it's we write the data into the buffer from a write clock, and we read the data out of the buffer from a read clock. If there's a frequency alignment between the write clock and the read clock, the slip buffer does not slip. But if there's a frequency offset between the write clock and the read clock, the buffer will slip. Typically, the clocks for the, read, the write and the read buffer come from two different places. The write clock comes from the circuit coming into the facility. 
And the read clock is generated locally in that facility, typically from a bits clock with a GPS receiver or something inside that office. So if there's no frequency offset between the two clocks, everything works well, no slips. But if there's a frequency offset, depending upon the magnitude of that offset, the slip buffer will slip at different intervals. It could be one slip per week, one slip per, per day, or the thing you don't want is many slips per day. These slips cause errors, whether it's a TDM application or whether you're carrying data over the circuits. If it is a data application, typically the data can be retransmitted once the error occurs. But if it's a real-time application, like video or voice applications, the data cannot be retransmitted, and this causes some level of degradation of the service itself. So somebody coming at this from, a, from an IP background, this sounds pretty similar to basically drop packets in an IP network. So you have some data that doesn't get transmitted because the, the, two buffer, the, the slip buffer gets invoked. And so you have a slip. And so you lose that data that should have been transmitted during that time. Is that about right? That's a good analogy. And that is correct. Another thing that causes the slip buffers to create errors or slip is what's called frequency wander on any of the circuits. Frequency wander can be introduced uh, by things like bit stuffing, which occurs in sonnet transport and other devices. So too much bit stuffing equals too much wander. If the magnitude of the wander is more than half the size of the slip buffer, that can also cause buffers to slip. So there are standards in place that limit the amount of jitter and wander on the circuits if they're going to be used for timing, such as slip buffer applications. What level of mismatch or you know, timing errors or slips on a circuit do you need to reach before it becomes noticeable to users? Um, I'm guessing the answer might be different here for fax calls and versus you know, audio calls when people are listening. What level of issues is noticeable? So that's a good question, and it does depend on the application. It's quite application-specific. But for example, if we're having an audio exchange like we are right now, and we have a slip that occurs during this live event, it would be noticeable. So it depends on sometimes luck, right? If the slips occur during times when you're not doing real-time applications, you may not notice it. But if the slips started slipping, for example, we had several slips during this session, it would be noticeable to all of the viewers or listeners. Okay, fair enough. So even if it's not happening a lot, whenever it does happen, it is going to be noticeable to people and they may well complain. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to take a moment to understand how this works. So we talk about bits clocks. In my world, that's the typically people are getting timing from one of two sources. Either they have their own bits clock locally that's providing timing, their switches and so on, or else sometimes people who don't have a bits clock are one step away from a bits clock. So they might be timing off a T1 that's bringing in their SS7 link or something. And then the folks who are providing that T1, they have a bits clock. And so they're getting, I think it's, they call it strat stratum, a different level of timing, different quality of timing because they're one step removed. But what is a bits clock? Like, how is it doing this? You mentioned GPS. So is it talking to satellites? What is it actually doing to provide us this reliable frequency? So a building integrated timing supplier, bits clock, is a system that's typically fully redundant with dual oscillators in it. And the oscillators need to be disciplined from a reference. That reference could be a GPS timing receiver reference. It could be a cesium atomic clock standard. 
because both GPS timing receivers and cesium atomic clock standards are stratum one level devices, better than a part 10 to the 11th frequency accuracy. So we discipline the oscillators and the blitz clock from the reference. And if the reference is lost, then we go into holdover on the oscillators and the bits clock, which typically would be stratum two, or what we call stratum three level performance. So there's always a hierarchy. The reference needs to be stratum one. The holdover oscillators and the bits clock need to be the next level of hierarchy with better oscillators than the devices we're timing within the offices, the cross connects, the switches, the sonic gear, whatever we're using the frequency uh, outputs for. Okay, that makes sense. And in terms of that original source, so it sounds like the GPS source is getting data from a GPS satellite, and then the cesium source is that is that like radioactive decay? How is it creating that regular yeah. frequency? Good question. A cesium is an autonomous reference; it needs no external input. And when you power it up, it's designed to produce a stratum on output. But there's a life associated with the cesium too, because the cesium depletes over time. Typically, you get somewhere between 12 to 15 years of stratum one performance, and then the tube needs to be retrofitted or like a, taking it to the gas station and filling the cesium pump back up with cesium again. So the cesium is almost analogous to a battery in the sense that it will eventually fail and need to be replaced or refilled, as you said. Yeah, it's a very simple device in the terms where it's a red light, green light device. If the light is green, usually it's working. If the alarm goes red, it means it's typically running out of gas. Okay. Cool. Thank you. So we've been talking about TDM networks, which is what I'm familiar with from my world working mostly with small ILEX and CLEX. But I'm guessing timing is relevant in other types of networks too. So within the voice world, we're gradually moving to voice over IP. Does that mean we can totally forget about clocking or is it still relevant in, the, in IP networks and maybe even in wireless networks? Well, first of all, there's an attribute to the bits clock system that's extremely important beyond the frequency output. The frequency outputs of the bits clock typically are DS1, either D4 or extended superframe framing type outputs. But there's also some outputs on the bits clock that are extremely important called composite clock outputs. Composite clock is a 64 kilobit rate output. It has a built-in bipolar violation every eighth bit that allows for framing of data circuits when we multiplex them up from channel banks into T1s. So the data circuits have no framing bits, and they achieve their framing bits when we multiplex to a T1 using that bipolar violation every eighth bit to create eight-bit words and multiplex them into T1s. So channel banks and STPs for SS7 signaling and conversion of SS7 to IP for voice over IP signaling and STPs uses composite clock signal inputs typically for the channel banks and the STPs. These are extremely important references to these devices. If we lose the composite clock signal, we cannot multiplex channel banks to T1s, etc. And if we lose composite clock signals to STPs, we can lose the SS7A links and we can isolate offices resulting in FCC reportable outages. So in many cases, the composite clock signals are so important, the technicians in the office will put special color wires on these so the technicians know, don't touch these wires, it can result in an FCC reportable outage. So there's some very critical components of bits clocks for these types of applications. And this is an example of a transition from TDM to IP 
when we change our signaling from SS7 to IP signaling and convert those in the new modern STPs we're putting in the networks today. That's really interesting. Yeah, so we were talking before about slips, which have a slight impact on quality of the media. But in the multiplexing world, the conversion from TDM to IP, a loss of a, the clocking source would just totally wipe out service. Yeah, you do not want FCC reportable outages. That usually has a fine associated with it. So that's one of the things you, you see a lot of expertise in timing as they move from TDM to IP. The older guys are retiring and going away. There's less expertise and knowledge in this area. So it makes, I guess, guys like me that have this type of experience more valuable to some extent. Yep, no, absolutely. I think we certainly see that trend in the industry. I started out during the beginning of the migration from TDM to IP. And these days, there are a lot of people working in telcos who don't really understand the TDM side of things. And a lot of the folks, like you said, who have worked on it for 30, 40 years, they're starting to roll into retirement. So it's becoming harder and harder to find people who understand SS7 and ISAP and MF and in this case, clocking. Okay. Do IP networks themselves need any timing like this? They're sending data over Ethernet cables and so on. I'm guessing my intuition is that they don't really need clocking. Is that correct? Yeah, IP networks are typically asynchronous, but it's also application-specific. There are applications within IP networks that require uh, frequency-based synchronization. There's some examples of that, circuit emulation, pseudo-wire, which is TDM on one end being carried over IP or vice versa. That requires uh, stratum-1 frequency as well. So in some cases, we see an introduction at the physical layer for distribution like we did for Sonnet or some Ethernet network. Not all Ethernet networks are asynchronous. Some are uses are use synchronous Ethernet concepts for circuit emulation type applications already. And you can also use network-based timing services to reconstruct frequency as well if you do not have synchronous Ethernet chains in place. So PTP or Precision Time Protocol is a network-based timing service that can be used to reconstruct frequency that can be also used for time transfer applications. So kind of application specific. We also see new applications in broadcast video and IP streaming video that require time transfer or accurate time delivered. And there's some specific network-based timing services, PTP profiles for video applications that are emerging in IP or ethernet network as well. And is that for... Is the impact of those new PTP protocols, is that on the quality of the video as broadcast, or is it to do with the authenticity of the delay in the broadcast to the receiver? Yeah, it has to do with the output of the video buffers being aligned properly. They have to make sure that if they transmit X amount of video, it must be played out within a certain time, or the video buffers will overflow. Okay, yeah, that sounds similar to the way jitter buffers work in voice over IP. You have a certain yes, amount yeah. of video of audio that you cache basically, which creates latency but allows you to deal with some level of, of jitter on the on the incoming side. So yep. you need some level of accuracy of your timestamps to achieve that. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. How does this whole thing apply to wireless networks? Hear about 5G and you know LTE and that kind of thing. This is all traffic data traveling through the air. Is timing relevant in this if, if there aren't cables? Timing is becoming more and more important in wireless networks as we transition more into the 5G domain. 
all 5G new radio technology is TDD-based or time division duplex-based and requires not just frequency, but also time and phase accuracy traceable to UTC or in this case would be GPS. So 5G, as we see it emerge from 4G, in 4G, a base station consisted of a radio and a baseband unit function. And they were typically co-located. And the timing piece was in the baseband unit, either an integrated GPS receiver in the baseband unit, or it could be a network-based timing service client like a PTP client in the baseband unit. And then the timing was sent to the radio over what we call a SIPRI link, or a common public radio interface link to the radio, which was typically TDM-based, produced very deterministic, accurate timing to the radio. But as we move to 5G, the baseband unit function is being segregated into what they call a CU-DU function and does not have to be co-located with the radio. And it no longer delivers timing from a CU or DU-BBU function to the radio. They use what they call eSIPRI or Ethernet links to the radio. So now the timing components that recover timing in the radio is in the radio itself. And that's typically... It started out with, in many cases, integrated GPS receivers in the radios, but now it's more dominant to use PTP, network-based timing services, to the radios. And there's a technical reason for that. If we have a cluster of radios and we put GPS in every radio, the radios do not have expensive holdover oscillators like we used back in the CDMA days. They're very cheap oscillators with no holdover. And all 5G timing is about interference. So if we put 20 radios out there in a cluster, all with GPS, and we lose one of the GPS, we have to take that radio out of service. It will interfere with the other radios. But if we use a PTP grandmaster function delivering a network-based timing services to the radios, all the radios are tied to that grandmaster. If that grandmaster loses GPS and begins to drift away from UTC time and phase, all the radios will drift in the same direction at the same rate. They will not interfere with each other. So really, this is the technical driver that is driving network-based timing services like PTP into 5G front hall applications. Because that allows you to then have them all, all the radios in a cluster to be using the same timing so you don't end up with the interference that you talked about. That is correct. And that phase alignment between the radios is extremely important. 5G TDD technology is subject to interference, and that interference is, causes severe degradation of services. So timing for 5G is very, very critical network component. You mentioned so there would be timing from a PTP source that would be using GPS on the back end. Would that PTP source also have its own oscillator as a backup in the same way that a bits clock would have done? Yes, we can put very good holdover oscillators in a PTP grandmaster like a rubidium atomic clock oscillator, or we can back up an edge-based grandmaster using a core grandmaster with PTP using a concept we call APTS, or assisted partial timing support, where we send a PTP flow from the core to the edge device, and we measure the asymmetry between those two locations because the asymmetry is what causes time transfer errors. So we can measure the asymmetry because we have GPS operating at both locations. So if we lose GPS at the edge, we can make the necessary correction 
in the timestamps to create a GPS proxy from the core to the edge location. So because it's only functioning as a backup, while you've got both sources available, you're able to understand the latency, basically the lag that you're getting from this backup source so that you can automatically correct for it if you have to use that as primary. That is correct. Yeah, very cool. So most of our customers, it's a trade-off in cost between putting an expensive oscillator in an edge grandmaster versus another layer of timing to back up the edge there's cost and performance trade-offs there. And so that always makes for an interesting discussion with the engineers. Yep, absolutely. Is it fair to say that BITS is maybe more of a legacy technology these days and we're moving more towards these PTP options? Yes, BITS is legacy. And in some cases, we're seeing an overlay of BITS with PTP or network-based timing service type products with NTP and PTP protocols and synchronous Ethernet capabilities. Or in some cases, we can replace older BITS platforms with newer platforms that have the network-based timing services available, as well as support for some of the legacy things like composite clock and frequency outputs. So it's really, again, an interesting discussion with the engineers is an overlay the best solution for them to modernize the synchronization infrastructure to meet new applications, or is replacing the older bits clocks with a more modern platform the right way to go. Yeah. And of course, as the TDM network as a whole is very, very, very slowly dying, I would imagine once we get to the end of that, bits may also be gone. But People have been predicting the death of TDM for quite a few years, and it's uh, still hanging in there very actively. I have to agree with that assessment. I've heard about the demise and the end of TDM for about 20 years now, and the investment is so huge, hard to replace all that in any short period of time, that's for sure. Yep, yep, absolutely. So focusing in a little bit on the the voice world, on the, the typical listener of this podcast, which is you know maybe somebody within a rural ILEC who is responsible for a mixed TDM and IP network, maybe providing IPTV, some video over that as well. What do you think the core takeaways they should get from this interview should be? What are the, the things that they need to make sure they don't forget about timing? I think a couple of the key messages would be that When we move to Ethernet and IP-based networks, if you have applications that still require frequency, you're going to have a choice. You can start putting in synchronous Ethernet, and all switches now, all the switching manufacturers offer synchronous Ethernet capability, which is a better high-quality oscillator in the Ethernet switches that's disciplined instead of free-running. It's synchronous, not asynchronous. As an option to provide frequency, just like in the Sonic days. Or you can look at your applications and say, do I need something beyond just frequency? Do I need time and phase? Do I need time transfer over my network as well? Because the investment in synchronous Ethernet can be pretty substantial. So if we use a network-based PTP timing service, we can do frequency reconstruction and time transfer without having to upgrade the network to synchronous Ethernet. So those are interesting technical and cost trade-offs. And I think the best advice we can give the engineers is identify your applications. Are they just frequency-based or do you need time transfer or UTC traceable time and phase as well? Then your best bet for your investment dollars may be on network-based timing services like PTP 
instead of trying to roll out synchronous Ethernet. Of course, if you have a big wallet, you could do both. What are some of the most common applications that would need that time transfer functionality, et cetera? Well, if you look at the IP devices being put everywhere in the network, there's a rudimentary time alignment, timestamp requirement for all of them. And that's typically satisfied by NTP mm -hmm. because the accuracy requirements are not that stringent. And then if you have higher accuracy requirement applications, it could be in the video world, it could be in the wireless world, because one of the things you're seeing, even in some of the independents and all kinds of wireline network providers, is the concept of wireless broadband using 5G. Whether it's wireless broadband services or wireless mobility services, it's all 5G TDD and requires UTC traceable time and phase. So it is quite amazing how many customers we're now engaging that are traditional wireline customers that are putting in this type of technology that now require accurate UTC traceable time and phase. And again, the technical and economics for network-based timing services like PTP is much better than trying to do distributed GNSS or GPS at all the end application sites. Great. Well, Jim, I want to thank you for taking the time to share with us today. If there's somebody listening who wants to get in touch with you or to learn more about what you can offer at Microchip, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can reach me at jim.olsen, O-L-S-E-N, at microchip, M-I-C-R-O-C-H-I-P.com. That's my email address. And you could reach me by phone too, 512-656-5371. I'll be happy to help you if you contact me. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have too. If you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation, then please be sure to join us again next time for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. And thank you again, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Look forward to maybe doing it again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you.